we'll go ahead. So this is, uh, I guess you, what you would call part three of our topic on a never-changing God. And uh, the first week we talked about the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. How a lot of times you'll hear the God of the Old Testament, right, was an angry, judgmental God. And the God of the New Testament is a loving, gracious God. And so we uh, looked at that, how that's a false dichotomy. Uh, how God's character remains the same throughout uh, all of Scripture, throughout all of history. Uh, and then last week, we uh, looked at the character of God just to show that it stays the same throughout uh, all of Scripture. How He is righteous, just, true, loving, and gracious. And you see that throughout all of Scripture. Um, but you do see where God operates differently in different parts of Scripture with different people. Um, this is where you get the idea of dispensationalism, right? There are different dispensations where God dispenses new information of what he's doing. He's revealing his will uh, over a period of time, so you see things change over that period of time of how God is operating in the world. And so that's what we're going to talk about uh, tonight. God himself does not change, but his operation does according to his will. Uh, Ephesians 1.9, Paul says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. So God has a will, and he's going to work in the world according to that will. Um, and so God does change what he does according to his will. For one to deny dispensationalism on the claim that God does not change is to be ignorant of the scripture. And so a lot of times uh, people say, right, God doesn't change. When you say dispensationalism, right, God's not doing today what he used to do, they'll say, well, that's not true because God doesn't change. Um, and they're missing the point, right? They're ignorant of the scripture. Uh, if they say that, those verses are talking about God's character, right? His character does not change, but what he does, does change based on uh, his will. So if you go to Genesis 2, 1 through 3, God changes what he does uh, based on his will at that time. In Genesis 2, 1 through 3, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all work which God created and made. So, of course, you know the story of creation in Genesis 1, where six days God created the heavens and the earth and all the things that are in them. Here it says, uh, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. So it took six days to create what we have here today, right? The universe, the earth, the things in it. God is not creating today, right? He finished that. He did it for six days and then changed what he was doing after that because he finished his will for those six days, right? Which was to create. So God is changing his operation after those six days. He rests on the seventh day, right? And then he course starts to have that relationship with Adam and Eve and tells them to take care of the garden right so he's changing how he's operating uh, Genesis 12 1 through 3 it says now the Lord has said unto Abram get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee and I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So this covenant was made with Abraham, and with Abram and his seed only. Right? It's made with Abram, then Isaac, then Jacob. 
God doesn't then go to another man and say, I'm going to make this covenant with you because this is who I am. I make covenants with people. Yes, he does make covenant with people, but according to his will. It's not just who he is that he makes covenants with a lot of people. Right? And so he's not making covenants like this today because he's already done that. So his operation has changed. Um, Luke 2, verse 5 through 7. So you jump to the New Testament. Of course, Luke 2 is the story of Jesus' birth. Uh, talking about Joseph, it says he went to uh, Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Right, so we know Christ, right, born of a virgin, manifest in the flesh, came and was born. Okay, this has already happened. He's not coming to be born a baby again. He's not coming to be born of a virgin. He's fulfilled that prophecy. He did what he uh, had purpose to do, and so he will not be doing that again. Right, he's changing his operation. Then you go to Acts 1 verse 9. says, And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. All right, so this is Jesus' ascension into heaven. All right, so you know the story. He was born of a virgin, uh, lived for 30 years, started his ministry, ministered for three years, was crucified. After his resurrection, he was on earth for 40 days, teaching his disciples, and then he ascended into heaven. So that's a lot that happened over 33 and a half years. He's not still here today is the point. Right. Jesus doesn't change. Wouldn't he still be here today doing the miracles and things? Well, no, he's changed his operation. He has a will, and you've seen throughout history God working according to that will and accomplishing his will throughout time. Uh, you're there in Acts. If you go to Acts 2, 1 through 4, it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is the Spirit coming down and filling the twelve uh, apostles there. And of course it gave them gifts. Right here it talks about how they spake with other tongues. And so we know during the Acts period, people were filled with the Spirit and could do miracles, things such as speaking in tongues and healing. If you go to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, Paul says, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. So you see, Paul said, the tongues shall cease. Well, if God doesn't change, right, shouldn't we be speaking in tongues today? Right? No, that's going to change with God's operation. He's no longer giving out the Spirit like he did there in that period giving people uh, the ability to speak in foreign languages without having studied them, which is what tongues is. Then you got Revelation 6, verse 16 through 17. Verse 15, it says, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, 
and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? And so this is the day where God pours out his wrath on the earth, right, to judge. Um, people want the rocks to fall on them, to kill them, because they don't want to face the wrath of the Lamb, and the wrath of Jesus. And you go to Revelation 21, verse 1 through 5. It says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So here you have peace on the earth. Right? God's not giving his wrath. Right? He's made all things new. He's created the new heaven and the new earth. This is after his judgment. And so again, for you to say, well, dispensationalism isn't true because God doesn't change, is to be ignorant of the scripture. We just ran from Genesis to Revelation. And you see periods where God has done things in the past that he's not doing today. Here in Revelation, that's still future. So there's something that's God going to do in the future. He's going to change what he's doing today, right, based on his will, right? It's all according to his will and his purpose, which is what the Bible is for, to reveal that, right, for us to study it, to know what God's will is, what his purpose is, and how we fit in that. Uh, if God is changing operations according to his will, then he will give different instructions at different times. Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 is a good verse to show this, where it says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom we have appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So here it says, God spake at sundry times and in diverse manners, but now he's spoken to us in these last days by his Son. And so, of course, this is in the context of after Jesus had ascended, um, Jesus had just recently been on earth, spoken things to the writer here of Hebrews. So he says, God, at different times, in different ways, spake to the, our fathers, right? So God spake at different times and in different ways. Uh, and then now he's spoken to us most recently by his son. So you see God giving instruction over a period of time in different ways and in different manners. That's what this verse teaches. So I want to look at some comparisons because it is very clear to see that God gives different instructions at different times just by comparing Scripture to Scripture. Uh, you find contradictions in your Bible, which should not be uh, an alarm or an issue for a believer when you understand dispensationalism. Right? A lot of people say, there are no contradictions in my Bible. And they mean well by that, but they fail to understand things change over time. God does contradict himself because he's speaking of a different uh, time period in history. Look at Isaiah 2, 4. It says, And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So here you have people beating their weapons, their swords and their spears, into garden tools. Uh, they beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks because there is no more war, right? There is peace on the earth. You don't need fighting uh, tools. You don't need weapons. Uh, you need garden tools so that you can tend to your garden. 
in Joel 3, verse 10, it's a very similar verse, but you pay attention to the words, and it, it's a contradiction to what we just read in Isaiah 2. Verse 9, it says, Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles, prepare war, wake up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. So here the instruction is, take your garden tools and turn them into weapons, right? So it's a contradiction. One is turning garden tools into weapons. The other is turning weapons into garden tools. You can't do both of these at the same time. The reason being, because they're speaking of two different times. Joel is talking about that time of judgment and war, where there will be war when Christ comes to judge. Isaiah 2 is talking about after that, when there is peace on the earth. So you have to be able to discern when you're reading the context of it and what time period it is talking to in Scripture. Uh, so you need to know Genesis to Revelation and God's will for all of mankind throughout the history so that when you read Scripture, you know what period it's talking about and how to apply it in your life today. Uh, Genesis 3, verse 17 through 19. After Adam and Eve sinned, it says... In Unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. So here you have the earth being cursed because of Adam's sin. In Revelation 22, verse 3, it says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. In Genesis 3, you have a curse. Genesis, uh, Revelation 22, it says, There shall be no more curse. Right? You can't have both at the same time. There's either a curse or not. Right? So these can't be happening at the same time. Matthew 6, verse 14 through 15. When you're comparing Genesis to Revelation, it's pretty easy because one's the beginning, one's the end. But when you get into, this is on the New Testament side of Scripture, you're going to see doctrinal differences, doctrinal comparisons that contradict. So you have to be more studied to understand when there's doctrine given, does it apply to you or not? Here, Jesus speaking, he says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So here you get forgiveness based on whether or not you forgive others. Uh, Ephesians 4.32, however, Paul says, And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So Ephesians 4.32 says you are forgiven, and that's why you need to forgive. There's a, a different instruction, a different application there, because it's speaking to two different audiences under a different operation at that time period. Um, John 4.22. Jesus again speaking, he says, You worship, you know not. You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. So you have that phrase, salvation is of the Jews. And there's other places throughout Jesus' ministry where he says, I'm only sent to the lost house, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He tells his disciples, don't go to Gentiles, don't go to Samaritans, only go to the lost sheep of Israel. 
in Galatians, or Colossians 3, it says it in Galatians as well. Colossians 3, verse 11, Paul says, Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So is salvation of the Jews, or is there no Jew, no Greek, no barbarian, no Scythian, no male, no female? One or the other, right? Again, there's a, a contradiction there. And then even in Jesus' own earthly ministry, you look at Luke 9, so this is the same time period, the same person giving the instruction, and there's a contradiction. Luke 9, verse 1 through 3, says, Then he, speaking of Jesus, called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staff nor scrip, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece. And so here he gives them instruction to go out and preach the kingdom. And he says, Don't take anything on your journey. Because he's going to provide for them. He's going to make sure they don't lack. So this is Luke 9. If you go to Luke 22. It's the same book, same time period, same person. Different instruction. Verse 35, it says, And he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, liked ye anything? And they said nothing. Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it. And likewise his scrip. And he that have no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. So now the instruction is, go get your purse and take it with you. Go get your script and take it with you. So instruction has changed, right? There was a point where he said, don't do that. Now he's saying, do it. And so you have that contradiction there because it's a different time period. Luke 22 comes after Luke 9, right? So there's been a time period between these instructions. He's changing what he's telling them. And, of course, God can do that according to his will. And so it's very clear that things change over time based on God's operation, right? It's according to his will, but he reveals more. He's doing something at one point that he's not doing at another point. So you have to be able to uh, discern, where am I at in Scripture? What has God said to me? What do I need to be doing, right? And this is the dispensational idea, right? You have to know where you fit in the Scripture and what God has said for us today. Um, God's plan had been purposed since the foundation of the world. If you go to Ephesians 1, it's not like things are just happening at random. God had his purpose planned before the world was even created. And so he's been working out that uh, purpose throughout history. Ephesians 1.3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he have chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have attained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. 
So here you have Paul talking about the will of God, right, and how God purposed to reveal this mystery and to have this body of Christ and those in it predestined before the foundation of the world, right? We were predestined to be in Christ. Those who are saved were going to be in Christ, is what he's saying there. Um, and he says, He abounded toward us in wisdom and prudence, because he's made known unto us the mystery of his will. And the mystery of that will is that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he will gather all things together in Christ, both in heaven and in earth. And so this is really the key to understanding God's will throughout time, right? This is the mystery of his will revealed, to gather all things in Christ. And he does that in the earth through the nation of Israel, and he does that in heaven through the body of Christ. Right? That's why you have these two entities. And so we'll look at that. Um, Israel was called to bring salvation to the world. Um, of course, them as a nation can't bring salvation. Only Christ can. But Christ came through the nation of Israel. Um, but he's going to use Israel as a nation to bring people to Jerusalem, to Christ. Um, they're going to be a kingdom of priests uh, for the Lord in the kingdom. Uh, Exodus 19, 5 through 6. This is where God makes a covenant with them. says now therefore if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people for all the earth is mine and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation these are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of israel and so the children of israel say we will do this and so they have this covenant that they, that they enter into with god to keep his uh his statutes his commands and they would be this kingdom of priests this holy nation so god makes this covenant with the nation of israel um, it's important to note that this covenant here is not made with Abraham. It's not made with Isaac. It's not made with Jacob. They've all died. This covenant is made with the nation. Okay? If you go to Deuteronomy 5, 2 through 4, this is what Moses says. He says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us who are all of us here alive this day. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to show you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid by reason of fire and went not up into the mount. And so he says this covenant was made with us, right? Not with our fathers, it was made with us. And that's important because God has a covenant with the nation of Israel, not just with Abraham. Uh, if you look at Deuteronomy 14.2. It says, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. So it's very, very clear that the nation of Israel is a chosen nation above all the other people of the earth. Because God made his covenant with them, he chose them. In Isaiah, you have prophecy of the nation of Israel. Isaiah 11, verse 1, says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. It shall make him a quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity. 
for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion, and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And so here you have here a prophecy of salvation when it's come to the earth, the kingdom. Right, where you have the animals aren't killing one another, right? There's peace between the animal kingdom but also the human kingdom. And this happens in Jerusalem, and it talks about the Gentiles coming to seek this ensign, which is Jesus. Uh, he's the, the sign there in Jerusalem. Um, he's the root of Jesse. So this is happening in Jerusalem. Isaiah forty six thirteen. says, I bring near my righteousness, it shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. And so very clearly, salvation is placed in Zion for Israel the nation, which is God's glory. And so you have their salvation again in Jerusalem because that's where the kingdom's at. That's where Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. We go to Isaiah 61 verse 6. says but ye shall be named the priest of the lord men shall call you the ministers of our god you shall eat the riches of the gentiles and in their glory shall you boast yourselves so this is speaking again of of jews right they shall be named the priest of the lord and you have the comparison here between uh jews and gentiles right you'll eat the riches of the gentiles which tells you he's not speaking to the body of christ because we're gentiles right gentiles make up the body of christ he's speaking to jews right uh, he says, yeah, they will be called uh, priests of the Lord, which again has to do with that covenant we read in Exodus 19. You'll be unto me a kingdom of priests. Zechariah 8, says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, it shall yet come to pass that there shall come people and the inhabitants of many cities and the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So when you read the Old Testament, there are prophecies that talk about God telling the nation of Israel, You won't need a temple because I'm going to be here on earth. I will be your God. You will be my people. Right? I will be a God unto you and with you. And so when that happens, Gentiles and nations are going to come to Jerusalem to pray before the Lord. Uh, we talked before about Solomon. When uh, the apostles asked Jesus, is it, is it at this time that you will restore again the kingdom to us? 
they had a kingdom at one time that was at the height of the world when Solomon was here. And you had people coming to Solomon for wisdom and to see the riches that he had. Well, that was a picture of what it's going to be like when Christ reigns, just Christ is far greater than Solomon. And he says that uh, in his earthly ministry. He says one greater than Solomon is here, speaking of himself. And so it's going to be similar to that where people are coming to learn wisdom and righteousness from Jesus Christ himself. Right? God is with you is what they're telling this Jew. I'm going to grab your skirt. Right? I'm going with you back to your kingdom because I want to pray before the Lord and understand righteousness. And so that's what's going on here. And that's how Israel, the Jews, are priests to the world. They're going with Jews back to uh, their kingdom, to Jerusalem, to praise the Lord and learn righteousness. So that's how that works. Um, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So this tells you that the old covenant was made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For there to be a new covenant, there had to have been an old one. Gentiles never had a covenant, so that should tell you we're not part of a new covenant. Uh, but it says, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in that day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. So again, he says the covenant I made with their fathers, that's not speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is usually referred to when it says the fathers. Because he says, in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Well, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were never brought out of the land of Egypt. Right? This is that covenant that we read where Moses said, in Horeb, God made a covenant with us, even us who are alive today, not with our fathers. So when Moses is speaking of the fathers there, he's speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here it's speaking of the nation of Israel. Uh, these people here in Jeremiah, their fathers, which would have been the people that were brought out of Egypt. But he says, This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So when God establishes this new covenant, there are several things that happen at that point. Um, the law is written in their inward parts, so they no longer have to teach the law. They'll be able to keep it because they'll have the Spirit of God. Um, he says, They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because everyone will know, is what he says. Again, they have the Spirit in them. The law is written in their heart. You don't have to teach your neighbor hey, this is what the Lord has said, this is his law, they're going to already know it because they have the Spirit of God in them. And then the other thing is, he says, I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. That happens when he establishes this new covenant. Okay, Israel as a nation does not have their sins forgiven. Right? Only individuals get their sins forgiven today when they put their faith in Christ. Right? No nation as a whole has their sins forgiven, but that is the covenant that he makes with the nation of Israel. Um, so even people, when they say we're under the new covenant today, they were not. Israel's not even under the new covenant. That's not what's going on today. It hasn't been fully brought to pass. Now if you go to Ezekiel 36, to talk more about the Spirit being in them and them not having to teach one another. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. He says, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. 
A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments, and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will also save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the corn, and will increase it, and lay no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree, and the increase of the field, that you shall receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. Then shall I remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Not for your sakes do I this, saith the Lord God, be it known unto you. Be ashamed and confound it for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord God, in, that, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the waste shall be builded. And the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say, This land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. Then the heathen that are left round about you shall know that I, the Lord, build the ruined places and plant that that was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. So this gives you some more insight into that new covenant. He says, I will put my spirit in you and cause you to keep my statutes, and you will keep my judgments. Right? He's going to have his spirit in them, causing them to do it. That's how they'll be able to keep the law through the spirit. Um, verse 33, he says, Thus saith the Lord, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities and waste and shall build at you. So that tells you it's still future at this point. Right, that he will wash them from their iniquities. Right, it hasn't happened yet. It's part of that new covenant. So hopefully this should give you some insight. In the early period of Acts, Peter talks about their sins being blotted out in a future tense because he understands that happens when Christ establishes kingdom in this new covenant. In Acts 3, verse 19... Peter preaching, he says, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come for the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. It shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. You are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son, Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. So here it's very clear that Peter is speaking to Jews, right? He talks about, ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers. So that would be Jews. And he says uh, in verse 19, you need to repent so that your sins may be blotted out at their times of refreshing. So Jesus has already died and resurrected, and Peter's not preaching, Christ died for your sins, believe in him and you'll be forgiven of all trespasses. He's saying it's still yet future. Yes, Christ died for that, but you don't get it until the new covenant is established, right? It's that when you have an understanding of the Old Testament, right, the prophecies of the kingdom to Israel, uh, the prophecies of their new covenant, it gives you some understanding and insight to what Peter is saying here, right? He's not revealing some new information. He's not revealing the mystery. He's simply uh, preaching what the prophet said, right? So he says, Samuel, 
um, and those that followed after have spoken of these days. Right? They foretold of these days that we're in. It's what Peter is saying. So Peter's just preaching prophecy here. You got to Hebrews eight. Hebrews was written to Hebrews, which was Jews. Um, Hebrews is not written by Paul to the body of Christ. Um, Hebrews 8, it says, For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the days when I took them by the hand, to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continue not in my covenant, and are regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And that he saith the new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So here is saying the same thing that we read in Jeremiah about the new covenant with the house of Israel, house of Judah. But he doesn't say this is fulfilled today. What he says in verse 13 is, Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So it seems to me like the old covenant wasn't completely done away with. It's just ready to be done away with because Christ has come and died is what's here in the context of Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. Christ has already paid for the sins. He's provided the blood that we need to have forgiveness. But until he comes back and establishes his kingdom, like Peter said, that's the time of refreshings, the old covenant is completely vanished away, right? It's ready to, but it hasn't happened yet. So even in Hebrews, it's still yet future for their sins to be blotted out. Uh, if you turn one page over, in Hebrews 9, verse 28, it says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, Unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And so it's the second time that he comes that he brings salvation. Right? He already bore the sins of the people. So when he comes the second time, he's not going to come to bear sin. He's going to come to destroy sin and bring salvation. Right? And so, again, Hebrews is yet future, talking about that future covenant. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 through 12. Peter says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. He's pretty much quoting the covenant that God made with Israel in Exodus 19, 5 through 6. These same words, a chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, a peculiar people. He says that you should show forth the praises of him who have called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall be whole, glorify God in the day of visitation. So here Peter's saying, right, you're this holy priesthood, this royal nation. You're the remnant, the believing remnant that's going to get the, the kingdom. He says, have your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Right? Don't let them judge you and say evil things of you. Uh, let them look at your good works and praise God, which is what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5. So Peter and his epistles are writing to, to Jews, to the remnant that believe on Christ. Revelation 1, 5 through 6. 
It says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and have made us kings and priests unto God and his father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Nowhere in Paul's epistles where you see him refer to the body of Christ as kings and priests. Right? We are members of a body. We are ambassadors for Christ. Here, John says, he hath made us kings and priests. Well, who is John writing to then? It would be the nation of Israel who is given a covenant to be a kingdom of priests. Right? And so that should tell you from Revelation 1, all of it's written to Jews. There are people who say the first three chapters are talking about this church age. And then chapter 4 through on, it's all future. There are dispensationalists that say that, and they would be wrong. Uh, Revelation 5, 8 through 10, talks about the same thing, being kings and priests. And then Revelation 21, we won't read the whole chapter, but this is the new Jerusalem that comes down, which should tell you this is part of that new covenant, because there's a new Jerusalem. right? And Jerusalem has to do with Israel and the land that they were promised. Right? It has to do with the covenant they were given. But if you look at verse um, 11, it's talking about this city, this new Jerusalem. It says, Having the glory of God and her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof, and the city lie four square, and the length is as large as a breadth. And he measured the city with a reed, twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And so as you read on, you see here it's very Jewish, very Israeli kingdom here. Right? It has the name of the twelve tribes of Israel, the names of the twelve apostles, Right, 12. This has to do with Israel. This kingdom is in Jerusalem. It's the new Jerusalem, and it's Jewish, right? It has to do with Israel because they were promised the kingdom. They were promised the covenant, right? And so this kingdom that comes down is in Jerusalem, and it's the fulfillment of the covenant and the prophecies that we've just read to Israel, right? To bring salvation to the earth. It's the point here. God's plan to call out this nation of Israel was, one, to bring Jesus Christ, right? To have uh, a seed come through the line of Abraham, but then also he made a covenant with the nation that we read in Exodus 19 to bring salvation to the earth, for them to be a kingdom of priests uh, and a holy nation. And so that is God's purpose for the earth, to use the nation of Israel to bring in salvation uh, to the nations. Um, his purpose for the body of Christ, we are called to a heavenly position, and we will be used to help with bringing all things together in Christ in heavenly places. Right? Again, that was the mystery of his will, to gather all things in Christ, both in heaven and in earth. So if you go back to Ephesians 1, verse 3, Paul says that, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So these spiritual blessings that we've been blessed with are in heavenly places. Right? We don't necessarily have all of them today. But we will get them when we get to heaven, right? We're blessed in heavenly places. Ephesians 2, 6, he says, He hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So again, you have a position in the heavenly places. You're not promised a position in the kingdom on earth, right? You're promised a position in heavenly places. Uh, Ephesians 3, 1 through 11, 
Paul says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you. So here it's very clear Paul's talking to Gentiles, right? He clearly says that. All the other passages we read talks about the Gentiles will come to us, right? Don't be like the Gentiles. Have your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Here Paul says, I'm writing to you Gentiles, right? I'm speaking to you directly. Uh, he says, How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So again, Acts 3, Peter says, Samuel and all the prophets foretold of these days that I'm talking to you about. Here, Paul says, In other ages it was not known by the sons of men. Right? They didn't know it. It was revealed to me. Uh, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs into the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all the saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So again, preaching to the Gentiles unsearchable riches. The kingdom and all the things that come with it, we just read about it, right? How there's going to be a kingdom and there's peace. Um, and this promise to the nation of Israel, we can read about these things. Here, Paul's talking about unsearchable riches. It's things you can't read about. They're unsearchable uh, because it has to do with this mystery that was given to Paul. Uh, he says in verse 9, To make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known, by the church, the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's interesting, Paul says this purpose of this uh, mystery, this body of Christ that was hidden God, being revealed to him, uh, was to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known the manifold wisdom of God. So this mystery has to do with those in heavenly places, principalities, powers, angels, things of that nature, can now know the manifold wisdom of God, right? His purpose is now revealed. They now know what that purpose is. Um, beforehand, that was not known. It only had to do with things on the earth. Um, and of course, this was according to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So there is some debate. I can't say that there's any necessarily scriptural proof, but you think about when Satan is cast out of heaven and all his angels, right, when God judges them, those could possibly be the positions that members of the body of Christ fulfill when the new heavens and new earth are created. Um, something to consider, but I can't say there's any necessarily verses that talk about that. If you think about all those positions that were held being taken away, we could be filling them. Uh, but we will be, obviously, have a position to have places, which is what Paul says. Um, Philippians three twenty through 21, he says, For our conversation is in heaven... From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, and it may be fashioned unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So Paul says our conversation is in heavenly places, right? That's why we look up for the Lord to come and get us, right? because that's where our position is at. It's in heavenly places. And then Second Timothy 4 I wrote verse 1, that's because I left off the last number. I think it's 2 Timothy 4, 18. 
this is at the end of Paul's ministry. He knows he's getting ready to die. He says, The Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul says he's going to preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom. Right? Because Paul understood he had a position in heavenly places. And we do as well as members of the body of Christ. So that is God's plan, right? To have all things in Christ, both in heaven and earth. He's going to use Israel for the earth the body of Christ, to help with the heavens. So because you have these two institutions by God, you will see difference in instructions to both. So this is why you see the different instructions. Because they're given either to the nation of Israel under a covenant or to the body of Christ, who's not under a covenant, but under, under grace living in this dispensation. You think about Romans 4, 5, where it says, To him that worketh not, but believeth his faith is counted for righteousness. So to him that worketh not, but believeth. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, For it is by grace through faith you are saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. So it's by grace through faith, not of works. Very clear that we are saved by faith in Christ. There's nothing we can ever do to be saved. Uh, to him that worketh not means you don't need to do no works for uh, salvation. If you're doing works for salvation, you're not saved. Right, because it's to him that works not. Not to him that believes and works. It's to him that worketh not. Whereas James says, you see then how that by works a man is justified, not by faith only. So this is another one of the contradictions. It's because James is under a covenant that says, if you believe, do these works. And so your faith is to do works. Right? It's in God, and God said to do this, so I'm going to do it. Um, our faith today is not in a covenant. It's in Jesus Christ and what he did, and he already did the work, right? So that's why you have that contradiction. And many people struggle with James 2 and Romans 4. They can't really explain it. Well, James didn't really mean, all right, if you're saved, you're going to do works, is what he's trying to say here. And they try to uh, change what the words actually say. Um, James was written to Jews. He was writing to Israel, which he says in James 1.1. Paul is writing to the body of Christ. Uh, Romans 6.14 says... You're not under law, but under grace. And then if you look at Deuteronomy 17. Verse 18 through 19, it says, And it shall be, when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests of the Levites, and shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his, his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. And so this was part of the law, was given to whoever was king over Israel. They had to write their own copy of the law so that they would memorize it and do it, right? And that's what he's saying here. You've got to write your own copy so that you may learn to fear the Lord and to keep all the words of the law. So again, Israel, um, starting with the king, was required to keep all the law. Matthew 23, verse 1 through 2. So again, Paul says you're not under the law. You're under grace. So Deuteronomy is clearly not to us today. It was to those under the covenant. Jesus says in Matthew 23, uh, it says, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. So those that sit in Moses' seat, the scribes and the Pharisees, teach the law. 
Okay? And Jesus says, whatever they're telling you to do, do it. Because they're teaching you the law of Moses. He says, but don't be like them because they say it, but they don't actually do it. He's saying, you need to actually do it. Right? Don't be hypocritical. So Jesus is saying, keep the law. Right? Whatever they tell you to do, do it. First uh, Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 talks about the gospel that Paul preached was that Christ died, was buried, and resurrected according to the scriptures. Um, he says, this is the gospel that I preached unto you and that you received, uh, wherein you were saved, he says in verse 1. So this is the gospel the Corinthians believed and were saved by, by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Galatians 1, 8 and 9, Paul gives warning to anyone who would preach a different gospel than what he preached. He says, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. So he says, If any man or angel preaches a different gospel than what you heard from me, let that person be cursed. Um, and, of course, that gospel, again, was the gospel of grace, that Christ died, resurrected, and faith in that is what brings salvation. You go to Mark 1, verse 14. It says, Now after that John was put into prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Well, Jesus is preaching a different gospel than Paul preached. Does that mean Jesus is cursed? Of course not. It's a different time to a different people under a different operation at that time, right? Again, you have to think about the Word of God on its timeline in history. Mark 1 happened before Galatians, right? God hadn't revealed the mystery yet. Paul wasn't saved um, at that time, right? Jesus came to preach the kingdom to Israel, and they rejected it. And eventually, because of their rejection, God set them aside and revealed this dispensation that we're in today. And then if you look at Luke 9, 1 through 6, Jesus sends his same disciples with that gospel. It says, and as Jesus passed by, he saw a man, that's in John 9, Luke 9, it says, then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staffs nor script, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece. And whatsoever house you enter into, there abide, and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. And they departed and went throughout the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So they go out and preach this gospel of the kingdom, right? And they're healing people as they do it. In Luke 18, when Jesus begins to tell them, right, he's going to die and resurrect, it says they didn't understand what he was talking about. So very clear the gospel that was preached in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was not the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection that Paul preached. Uh, Revelation 14 is interesting. Paul says, whether a man or angel preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. So you think about even an angel, they preach a different gospel. Paul says they're wrong. But in Revelation 14, 6, it says, And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. 
and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. So this angel is preaching the everlasting gospel. So you have an angel preaching a gospel here. Uh, and this gospel is to fear God and give him glory uh, for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made the heavens. So this everlasting gospel is to fear God and to give him the glory. So you need to know uh, to which instructions, which institution you belong. Right? And of course today it's the body of Christ. You get your instructions from uh, the apostle of Paul. Uh, but the revelation given to Paul explains how God can be righteous and true and show grace and love to sinners with no covenant and yet remain just. So this is going back to why you do see that difference where God operates differently under the Old Testament where he's destroying nations, right, judging people when they commit sins. Uh, versus today, it seems like there is no judgment. Right? That's because God has already judged Jesus Christ and he's operating in the world today based off of Christ bearing the sin for us, and this is what Paul and the mystery explains. If you go to Romans 3.21, it says, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. And so God is just to forgive sinners based off of what Christ did. That's what he's saying here, right? To declare Christ's righteousness. Christ was righteous. He was perfect. And he paid for your sins. So God doesn't have to judge you because Christ has already bore those sins. Right? So that's what makes God the just and the justifier. Right? So those who have faith uh, are not being judged because Christ has took their sin for them. If you go to 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. It says, All things are of God who have reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and have given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, have committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as so God to beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So there, very clearly says, Christ was made sin, even though he did not know sin, so that we could be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Where it says that God was not imputing the trespasses against the world when Christ was on the cross he was instead reconciling the world to himself right so again that payment that Christ paid uh, was to reconcile the world to himself and to appease the judgment of God right to where God doesn't have to impute sin today uh, based on the cross work of Christ uh, the whole chapter of Romans 5 talks about how in Adam right sin came into the world but in Christ you have righteousness uh, the gift of righteousness Talks about how God died for the ungodly, right? And it's by faith that you can be saved. Um, God committed his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So again, explaining the death of Christ uh, and how that is why God can be just and the justifier today. Romans 8, 38 through 39, think about the love of God. And the Old Testament talks about how he loves the righteous but hates the wicked. 
Here, Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, Romans 5.8 talks about God committed his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So he just says, blessed is the man, right, whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered but david doesn't understand why that's happened right he doesn't explain this has happened because christ has come and died or he will come and die he says whoever sin is covered that man is blessed right which is a true statement but he doesn't understand how god can be just and the justifier right it's the mystery revealed to paul uh, that explains this so the revelation given to paul explains how god can be righteous and true but yes gracious and loving to a wicked and sinful world. And then you might also have the question, well, why did God not reveal grace earlier? Right? Why didn't he reveal it sooner? Uh, Galatians three sixteen through 29. <clears throat> he says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, he saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So here Paul is saying the promise that he made to Abraham was to a singular seed. Uh, and this is true in two ways. One, it's speaking of Isaac, which was true, but also it was looking ahead to Christ. Right? Christ would be the seed that everyone would be blessed in. Um, and the reason I made the point earlier that a covenant was made with the nation of Israel is because if you don't have that, you could say, well, see, the covenant with Abraham is also for us today, right? And it was fulfilled in Christ. Well, that is partly true, but there's still a covenant with the nation of Israel that was made after this covenant with Abraham about this seed. Um, so that's important to know because people will say, right, we're spiritual Israel and we replace their covenant because of verses and passages like this. Um, but he says, it was to this seed, which is Christ. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that should make the promise of none effect. So the law can't make this promise that he made to Abraham of no effect, is what he's saying. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there have been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture have included all under sin that the promise might be a faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So Paul says here the law was given uh, because of transgression, or it was added because of the transgression. He says, uh, but the scripture have concluded all under sin. So the point of the law was to show that all humanity was unjust, all humanity was wicked. Um, if God just said you're all wicked, and didn't give no proof to humanity, we would have said, well, you're unjust, God. Even if God was right, there's no evidence to that. But he gave the law to show all of you are wicked. Uh, in Romans 1, we'll not read it, but you can read it yourself. Romans 1, 2, and 3, Paul explains this in further detail. Romans 1, he talks about how in the beginning, right, they were vile and unrighteous, speaking of the Gentiles. So God set aside Gentiles way back then. Right? You think about the flood and all that. Everyone was wicked except for Noah and the eight that were on the ark there. 
then in verse uh, in Romans two one he says, "Therefore thou art inexcusable, man, whosoever thou art that judges." He starts talking about Jews and how they've broken the law. They're also unjust before God, and that's when you get to Romans three where he talks about all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Um, there's none righteous, no, not one. Right? The law was given to show, hey, I'm giving you these instructions. This is my law. If you keep it, you're righteous. But no one could keep it. Right? So that was part of the reason why God gave the law um, and waited a while to uh, show grace was to show, hey, you need my grace. Right? You can't keep my law. That's the point of what the law was to show. Um, and, of course, Israel missed that lesson. Um, but if you go to Romans 11... Just because you have grace revealed doesn't mean that it takes away the covenant that was made with Israel. In Romans 11.25, it says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sin." So here it's still yet future, the taking away of the sins of Israel. It says, As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in time past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. Of the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways past finding out. For who have known the mind of the Lord, or who have been his counselor, or who have first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, it's not a coincidence that the mystery was revealed soon after the death of Christ. God used Israel to bring that to pass. He waited many years, one, to give mercy to Gentiles, to bless Israel. They could have been saved that way. But also to show, hey, you're all sinners. Right? I've given you this law. I've been patient. I've been um, long-suffering towards you, and you continue to break it and break it and break it. And so once he brings Jesus Christ, he gives Israel another chance, he gives them the spirit, right? And people still reject it. And so he says, okay, you show me clearly you're all sinners, right? I've shown the world, really, is what God was doing there, that you're all sinners, even though I tried to help you and give you the law and give you my spirit. Or I even sent my son to preach unto you and you rejected him. And so it's soon after that that he reveals the mystery, right? Because he's done made proof, right, that men are wicked. And that's what Paul's saying here, right? Um, For as ye in time past have not believed God, you have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. It's through the unbelief of Israel that we have mercy today because they had, had they believed, he would have set up the kingdom then, right? But of course he knew they wouldn't. Uh, but that kind of explains some of why God did not reveal grace uh, sooner because, again, it was according to his purpose. Uh, and then you have the question of why does God not intervene with miracles today? Um, in short, you can read these passages, but it's because he's working through his word. Right? He's not working through a covenant. He's operating through his word. Colossians one twenty five. Paul says the mystery fulfilled the word of God. Right? We have all the information we need here in this book. So we don't need God to fill us with his spirit in the way that he did in Acts to teach us things that we don't know because we have it in his word. Right? And that's why he says in 2 Timothy 3.16-17, all scripture is profitable so that the man of God can be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Right? You have what you need in this Bible 
to know the will of God, to do the will of God, to be complete uh, and thoroughly furnished in that. Right? You don't need the Spirit showing you things and giving you a new revelation so that you know what God would have you to do. He's already given you that. Uh, so God does not intervene with miracles because he's intervening through uh, the working, uh, the effectual working of his word, which is what Paul says in First Thessalonians to the Thessalonians. He says, we thank God that you believed our word, not as our word, as man's word, but as it really was the word of God, which now worketh effectually in you. Right? So the word of God was working in the Thessalonians. Right? That's how God works today, through his word. It should work in your life to change you right? and to teach you to do God's will. So that was a lot. took a little bit longer than I thought, but hopefully it gives some clarity on uh, what dispensational dispensationalism really is and why it's important so that you can know the will of God, know where you fit in it, right, and know how to operate according to it. Uh, and also maybe give some explanation as to why it does look like God changes in some passages compared to others it's because it has to do with God's will and how he's operating in the world at that time. Uh, but any thoughts or questions?